This is the business of pleasure. I live life to enjoy it, and I don't really care what anybody has to say. I come from a family of strong women, and you know, I mean, I just, that's what I know. Because we're scared to talk about it. That is so crazy to me, because at the end of the day, everybody's doing it. People need to stop being so hush-hush about everything right. and so shy about everything. Welcome to our podcast, a weekly discussion with people who are in the business of pleasure. Brought to you by Bedroom Candy, a sexual health and wellness company. Once a week, we'll discuss the ins and outs of the sexual health industry, entrepreneurship, relationships, and empowerment. Join me, Nadine Thompson, president of Bedroom Candy Boutique Parties, on this journey of self-discovery as we wash away age-old stigmas about sexuality, self-love, and to learn about the lives of the people that make their living in the business of pleasure. Welcome to today's edition of The Business of Pleasure. We're really delighted to have on the podcast today Miss Hallie Lieberman. Hallie obtained her PhD in sex toy history from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 2014. She's frequently featured on podcasts such as In Bed with Susie Bright, Dr. Debbie Herbenick's Kinsey Confidential, and Bitch Magazine's Propaganda. Her writing has been published in outlets such as Bitch, Bust, and Elle magazine, as well as peer-reviewed journals including Enterprise and Society. She often speaks at university sexuality events and conferences, including the University of Wisconsin-Madison's Sex Out Loud seminar, the European Social Science History Conference, the Society for History of Technology Conference, the Popular Culture Associations Conference, and the Western Association of Women Historians Conference. She lives in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Hallie. It's nice to have you on The Business of Pleasure. Hi, it's nice to be here. It's so great reading your bio and getting prepared uh, for the interview. I said, wow, this is somebody who's taken sex to a whole new level. She's got the whole thing figured out. Um, I really loved the book. I was able to get an advanced PDF of it from your publisher. And of course, I haven't been able to read it all in in a week, but I was really um, engaged with the chapters I did read. Um, You're a great writer and a wonderful storyteller, so congratulations. I think your book will do extremely well. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Yeah, it's really good. You're a great storyteller. One of the... um, so the new book is called Buzz, and um, I wrote, I read something that was written by Hanny Blank about it. She said, an engaging survey of a largely unconsidered history, Hallie Lieberman's Buzz gives America the long overdue backstory to the grown-up contents of its nightstand drawers with the flair of a practice storyteller and the research of a well-trained historian. And I thought that was perfect. And Hanny Blank is the author of Straight, The Surprisingly Short History of Heterosexuality, and Virgin, The Untouched History. So I I just thought her description was great because you really do give um, a wonderful insight into what people have in their nightstands. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, thank you. (laughs) So one of the first 
parts, I guess, as I was reading the introduction and I, you know, um, was fascinated by your own personal history with sex toys and your intro where you talk about the first one that you found. I think it was at a summer home you and the family were at. Do you want to speak about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Well, we were staying, um, it was actually at a sort of rundown motel in uh, in the Florida Keys mm-hmm. um, that we would go to regularly um, that had a resident dolphin who lived in a lagoon named Sugar. <laughs> and uh, Sugar Sugar has since passed away because it was many years ago, so RIP. But um, anyway, we were staying there, and I was in a hotel room um, with my parents and brother, and... I was rifling through the drawers like I like to do when I'm in a hotel room, and usually I uh, only find a Bible or, you know, maybe pen and paper. But this time, in that third drawer from the top, I found a vibrator. Um, I didn't know that what that's what it was. I was only 10 years old, and it was in um, sort of this zippered uh, case, and I could feel something cylindrical underneath the case and I told my mom oh my god I found a pencil sharpener and I opened it up and I showed it to her and she said that's not a pencil sharpener and the look on her face was like horror and I was like well what is it you know I was so curious and I knew it was something like exciting because my mom had such a strong reaction and she said let's not talk about it and at that moment I was fascinated by this you know thing that had caused such a strong reaction to my mom and sometime later I found out it was a vibrator. <laughs> I I loved I loved that story because that began your journey. I mean, here you are writing about sex toys. I mean, I I just think it's fascinating where our stories sometimes begin or what lives in our unconscious mind that, you know, comes back up again when you look at where your journey with sex toys began. It's really quite interesting. Yeah. I mean, if my mom had not had that reaction, if she'd just been like, oh, it's a vibrator, I probably would have been like, oh, okay, I'll study, you know, something else later. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, it is, it is kind of amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. Another really important question I had from um, reading was, um, you sort of talk about sex toys um, evolving from symbols of female emancipation to tools in the fight against HIV and AIDS. Um, I'm wondering how you see uh, sex toys, uh, you know, how you view sex toys and female emancipation. Um, well, what's interesting is, like, back in the 1960s when... Um, the masturbation pioneer Betty Dodson, who was a radical feminist who was too radical for most feminists, um, when she in, she was the person who introduced the vibrator to the women's movement and to feminism, and she saw it as a tool that allowed women to uh, distance themselves from their partners, to learn about their own bodies, to learn how to bring themselves pleasure Mm -hmm. and not have to be dependent on a man for pleasure. Um, And so they were these tools to emancipate yourself and to learn about your body, learn how to give yourself orgasms. Um, And for a lot of people, they still are those kind of tools, 
But um, now they're also seen not as just devices for, you know, women's uh, emancipation from these relationships, but also seen as, like in Fifty Shades of Grey, as devices that tie us ever closer in relationships, traditional relationships. So there's multiple kind of uh, meanings of sex toys now. Yes, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I learned in my journey with sex toys, I remember speaking with Candy Burris um, before I started working at Bedroom Candy. And, you know, she talked about seeing sex toys also as a way of um, helping actually some women or supporting some women um, and helping them to abstain from um, abusive relationships, uh, seeing it as a way that many women who stay in relationships, abusive relationships because of the sex and feeling that if they left that relationship, they probably would never find somebody else and they would never have that pleasure. And the thought of doing away with that pleasure seemed harsher than staying in the abusive relationship. And sex toys for some women has enabled them to figure out, you know, I don't need to be in this bad relationship just to have the pleasure. I can get pleasure with a sex toy. And that was kind of eye-opening for me, uh, though I had worked for so many years with women as a therapist. I was like, wow, that I'd, I'd never thought about that before. Oh, that's fascinating. And I've never heard um, the specific things about people leaving um, abusive relationships before. And that's, that's so wonderful that people could use sex toys feel sexual pleasure on their own and yeah. be able to leave. Yeah, it was, um, yeah. And that's, you know, Sex Toys Changing the World. That's what my book's about, how so many people involved in the industry, and I guess Candy and you are also included in that, um, got into the industry as a way to change the world. And that's been uh, at least true for a, a bunch of people in the industry for over a half a century. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was really, I mean, when we talked about it and then I, you know, I've done a lot of group uh, sessions with women and talked about it and more and more women started sharing with me that, yeah, you know, when, you know, when they were afraid to leave a marriage or they were afraid to leave a bad relationship and when they open up and talk about it and say, you know, part of what keeps me there is the sex. The sex was really great. So we'd make up and the sex was great and I'd stay. And then, you know, something bad would happen again. And then we'd make up. And so I was like stuck in this cycle. And then when I realized I could have pleasure every night using a sex toy, I didn't need to be in this bad marriage or this bad relationship um, because it was just a sex um, that that was liberating. And it made perfect sense to me. And it's been really empowering for me to speak to women about that and really see how a sex toy could be indeed liberating. And I think even for younger women that I've spoken to who say, you know, I don't have to feel addicted to sex or I don't have to go out and do ridiculous things as a 20-something-year-old to get sex. Um, I know that a great sex toy can do the trick, so I don't need to, you know, go to a bar and, you know, pretend to like it and, and just to get, you know, that kind of pleasure. And I thought it's very interesting. So I've begun to see sex toys and view them in a much more positive and liberating way. It, it can be for many women. 
Yeah, that's that's uh, that's wonderful. And you know, throughout the history of sex toys, like in the 1970s, there are these letters women wrote to Eve's Garden, which is was the first feminist sex toy store in mm-hmm. the U.S., um, founded in 1974. And some of them, one of them that really stands out to me is one where this woman says, "I'm 40 years old. I've been married to my husband for 20 years." Um, I've never had a super satisfying sex life. I bought a vibrator for the first time, and now I'm leaving my husband. Um, and that's that's a different story from what you're saying, is that the sex is so great and people are staying but um, for it, and then they decide they have a vibrator and they can uh, <laughs> give it to them on their own. But this was the opposite. The sex sucked. She got a vibrator, and she said, you know what, bye. And then she said, I'm leaving behind, you know, I, I'm sick of, you know, being in this wife role anyway, and it gave her the, you know, strength to just get up and leave in the, in the 70s. So I think they can work, uh, yeah. work in that way, too. Yeah, um, yeah. She was, she was also liberating herself from something that wasn't working for her, and clearly, yeah, it's another form of liberation. So I see it when I read that line, um, female emancipation, I thought, you know, this is really interesting. It makes me want to jump to another part of your book where you talk about sex toy parties. And I want to talk more about sex toy parties, but a particular part in there where you mention that it was surprising to you um, how many sex toys were, even though they were purchased by women, there is this part about at the parties that women were buying toys to satisfy their men, which I found, again, I know that from being um, in the industry now, but I I found it very fascinating. I thought, "Mm, maybe this was only something I was seeing. But to hear, you know, to read what you wrote in the book about, you know, the types of toys that women bought and what the top selling toys were when you were selling them, um, like the male masturbation sleeve. It's like our number. It's in the top five products that we sell at Bedroom Candy. And I was blown away by that, by how many people would go to a party, a sex toy party for women and buy a sex toy, a masturbation sleeve for their boyfriends. Oh wow! So I was not aware that Bedroom Candy it's still it's still one of the top sellers. Like you know, because I was selling them in like 2004, 2005. So uh-huh. twelve years later, still a top seller. It is, it wow. is. It's in the top five, and so to me, it's an interesting statistic. It's interesting that, you know, you have a party where ninety, you know, five percent of the people at our parties are women. And the male masturbation sleeve, which we call helping hand. It's a great feeling sleeve. It's great silicone. You put it on. I mean, they have a lot of fun demoing it because you can put a little lubricant in there and you put a couple fingers in and you, you know, can sort of mimic the movement of, you know, um, a penis inside and what it would feel if you like if you were masturbating. And it's fun. And women, you know, their response is often positive, which is, gosh, I can't wait to take this home to him and he's going to love this and you know I'm not going to have to do it he's going to you know but women are buying products to really please their men and when I read that in your book I thought boy that's fascinating and it's still happening today yeah yeah you know it's it's such an interesting thing for me and um 
it shows, you know, when Betty Dodson introduced sex toys to the feminist movement, they were not about pleasing the man. It was about women finally, you know, taking control of their own sexuality. And basically, she was making the argument men have all, you know, always known how to please themselves. Men, you know, masturbate from young ages. And, um, and it's weird how now, you know, in the 21st century, women are still buying toys to please their men at parties that are designed um, for them and for women. And what's interesting, too, is the way that they were framed at the parties, passion parties that I worked for, which was it would, uh, like masturbation sleeves, it was called the Gigi, and it was pink, and it wasn't that high quality, actually. But uh, it was framed as something that would prevent your man from cheating on you. Right. And once we, you know, said that, like, if you're away, you can just talk to him on the, talk dirty to him on the phone, and he can use his Gigi, and he can masturbate with it. Uh, a lot of women, um, in, instead of going and cheating on you, a lot of women were convinced, okay, um, this is a way to prevent my man from straying, and I'm going to buy it. And uh, and it, it was weird to – it seemed like kind of a very old-fashioned thing to, you know, worry about controlling your man's sexuality instead of focusing on, on your your own and empowering yourself. Yeah, it's interesting, and I think that theme – still is very current today. I mean, I hear that a lot um, in my conversations. Um, you know, there's um, I've done some podcasts with um, women who have worked with um, married couples, particular, particularly in the Christian community. It's very common to hear people talk about sex toys. I talk about it as a way of promoting intimacy in the marriage and helping cu- couples to become more intimate and to be able to share this very pleasurable experience with each other. But a lot of the conversation is about how do I keep my man happy? How do I keep my marriage intact? How do I prevent my man from straying? And so you see some of those old, you know, themes coming up about the need to please the man in order to preserve the marriage. And I I just find that very interesting. And it's still very common. And it's very much a a very, you know, talked about thing, particularly when you talk to married couples or people within the Christian community, they talk about it. And it seems to be only acceptable if you talk about it as a way of saving the marriage or protecting the marriage, um, using the toys. And usually it's about how to keep the man pleased so he doesn't stray from his marriage. Yeah, that's really interesting. And and what it's interesting, too, is that, you know, sex toys among a lot of people are seen as this very progressive, you know, thing as um, uh, devices, you know, our acceptance of them uh, shows that as a culture we are very sexually liberated um, and liberated with gender roles. But when you actually dig deeper and, you know, your experience, my experience is that um, being, you know, using sex toys or being open to using them doesn't mean you actually have liberated uh, gen- ideas of gender in your personal life or uh, ideas of gender roles because you can still use sex toys to further your, you know, um, sort of more conservative 
uh, gender roles in your personal life. Exactly. I agree wholeheartedly. And I also remember a part in your book where you talk about how surprised you were at how conservative many of the women you were selling to were. A lot of them sort of the soccer moms, the you know, conservative housewives, many of them, some of them, their husbands were away in the service. They needed the sex toys for that reason. But that you were surprised at, at how conservative the group was as opposed to what you would think would be this very, you know, liberated, you know, um, feminist who's like, oh, I'm about my toys and my pleasure, but that um, you were surprised at the demographic that you were selling to. Yeah, exactly. And it was funny. One of the companies I worked for, they said that the parties among supposedly liberated feminists were <laughs> like the least open and least comfortable, and that they were the um, uh, most uncomfortable about talking about sex, which was a weird thing, too. But yeah, it was very uh, surprising to see a lot of people with you know, conservative people who were, uh, you know, religious, who were into sex toys. Yeah. I just interviewed a consultant, uh, Trenda Nelson, who lives in the Bible Belt, and she's um, one of our, she's our number two seller at Bedroom Candy. She's a white woman who lives, you know, in the Bible Belt. And she talked about that as well. She talked about, you know, that's who she was selling the toys to. But what was interesting, her slant was more on education, was helping couples and helping women, educating them about sex and the use of sex toys and how sex toys can really complement their marriage and educating them on how to use them, the benefits of them. And I thought that was a really great approach because that's her way in the door um, because she found a lot of women um, and I would probably say women in their, you know, 30s and 40s are probably, you know, all often say, you know, gosh, you know, nobody ever talked to me about sex, far less sex toys. You know, I've been married now for 15 years. It's getting kind of stale. You know, what can we do to spice up our marriage? And I really don't know anything about sex toys. I know, you know, I know very little about sex. I know even less about sex toys. So she's been able to make a great living by providing some really excellent education uh, for those women and for those couples, which I think, again, is a, a wonderful um, and liberating thing to do. Yeah, yeah. No, that is that is a wonderful thing. And, you know, the, the interesting thing, too, um, about, uh, well, I was just thinking about, so you said she's a white consultant. Yeah. And um, what percentage of your consultants are uh, white? What percentage are black? I was wondering about that. Yeah, we have, I would say, about... Um, 80% of our consultants are African American or women of African descent. Um, and then the other 20% are um, white, Hispanic, a few Asian. Um, and I think that demographic has a lot to do with the fact that it's a company that was started by Candy Burris from the Real Housewives of Atlanta. So, you know, the show has a great following in the black community. So people sort of. Um, you know, women sort of heard the show, they heard about Bedroom Candy and then uh, joined because of that connection. But more and more, they're getting more exposure. Yeah, and that's that's really cool because, I, and I don't know if you got to this part in the book, but the um, inventor of the silicone dildo was um, 
an African, well, he wasn't from Africa, he was from Grenada, but a black man from Grenada, um, an island who came to the U.S. and actually got uh, disabled, um, got handicapped while working at the International Harvester Company um, and became a paraplegic and invented the silicone dildo to actually help please his wife. Um, Are you kidding? Um, Yeah, and so he's this inventor in the industry. He hasn't been given enough credit. His name's Gosnell Duncan. And uh, he also innovated in in another way, and this was in the early 1970s, which is by creating dildos in all different um, shades of brown and black. Um, And at the time, that was unheard of. And so it it was kind of amazing what he did. So this this history to the sex toy industry, um, I think, needs to be uh, known more widely. Wow. Is he still alive? No, unfortunately. So he died a couple years ago. Mm -hmm. I did get it to interview him before he died. um, And I got his was able to preserve his records um, because his niece was going to throw them out. but he's a fascinating guy. He, I mean, he, he created them in his Brooklyn basement, um, and he talked to engineers from GE to help design these silicone sex toys. And yeah, he, he was just a really cool guy. Wow. Well, I am blown away. Um, you'll be surprised to hear that my roots are from Grenada. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. I wonder if you know any of his family. Well, we have very close family, the Duncans. Um, So I'm going to be making a few calls today. But my parents are both uh, from Grenada, and I spent all of my childhood summer vacations in Grenada. Um, So Grenada is home for me. That is so bizarre. (laughs) This is awesome. So Lurleen, and I can also connect you with Lurleen Martineau, his niece, who's wonderful. But if you know, I mean, I don't know how small the island is, but... It is a very, it's one of the smallest islands in the Caribbean. Okay. Well, and in some of his children, he had five kids, Mm -hmm. and some of them still live on the island. Um, I, I believe at least, like, one does. So, yeah. Wow. I have to do, I mean... Oh, my gosh. I mean, you're talking, and I'm here on the other end of the mic going, what? Did she say Grenada? Did she say Duncan? No, she didn't. This is, like, crazy. Oh, my gosh. How fascinating is that? That is wonderful, and I need to follow up if you are related, if you do know them, and if they, because I need a picture of him that I've wanted to, I do not have a good picture of him. So if you have any relatives who... Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, we've got to work on this, Hallie. This is too much. I am going to call my mom when um, on when I'm finished the podcast to ask her if she knows Gosnell Duncan. Oh, my goodness. That that's crazy. That's really bizarre. <laughs> that's an awesome connection. And two people from this tiny island who are involved in the sex toy industry. Or, I you know. know. I know. I mean, we've got to really get him some more showtime here and uh okay so we'll talk about that another time but that's really fascinating the other one i wanted to ask you about was um um there are a couple of fascinating characters ted marsh who you said was an entrepreneurial ventriloquist and dildo maker tell me about him okay so well he actually he pronounced it ted marche marche it was okay. not his real name, though. Um, 
but he was a fascinating character. So he um, was a ventriloquist, which is a, in the 50s and 60s, which is a profession, a weird profession, and something most people can't make a living doing, and he did. Um, he was one of the most famous ventriloquists of the time and written about in gossip columns. Um, and he had a friend who, uh, the way he got into the sex toy industry, he had a friend who had started, oh, sorry, that's a... No problem. Uh, Georgia Tech's campus right now. Okay. They have um, something that makes a noise like every... 40 minutes. Okay. Um, but anyway, so he had a friend who uh, had started making prosthetic penises, which was what they called them at the time. Um, and he, you know, asked uh, Ted and said, hey, you want to come in on this business? And Ted had been um, engineer, like dabbled in engineering. He uh, made this device to help keep your glasses from sliding down, which was really important when you're a ventriloquist. Mm -hmm. So he got into this biz. So he started helping his friend in this business and he employed his, um, and so he was a ventriloquist during the day making dildos at night. This is in the late sixties, early seventies. And he got his son um, to help him make it, make dildos, um, his teenage son. So they would sit around the dinner table and they would, uh, kind of carve these dildo uh, molds together as a family, a 16-year-old, him, uh, Ted Marche, his wife, and they would work together as a family, and they created uh, these dildos, which is, which is really weird, and he eventually, you know, retired from ventriloquism and did this full-time. Wow. Um, and the company he started is now Doc Johnson. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. So he... His company was the precursor to Doc Johnson, and at the time he was only making strap-on penises be because of the laws. Um, dildos were, you know, basically illegal, but if you sold something that was um, for a marital aid for a husband to wear during sex with his wife, um, you could kind of get a around the laws. Okay. Wow, interesting. And then what I also thought was fascinating was, uh, but it made sense, Dwayne, and I guess his last name is Cole Glazier? Yeah, I don't really know how to pronounce it. Okay. I think that's correct. Yeah. yeah, a gay ice cream truck driver who founded the first boutique sex toy store. Do you remember what the store was called? The Pleasure Chest. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah, and so that's still around today. It's big today. It's in L.A. It's in New York. Um, and he's an interesting character because, like Gosnell Duncan, he was a Seventh-day Adventist. And, really? Um, yeah, yeah. And they were both raised pretty religiously. Um, and Cole Glazier left the church in um, after college. So he was in the closet basically for, you know— most of his young adulthood, then went out to L.A., became an ice cream truck driver. And it was there that he discovered he liked selling things. He was really into sales. Um, then he moved to New York at the end of the 60s and became a stockbroker. Um, but he, he came out of the closet in L.A. And um, when he moved to New York, he uh, decided to start his own business and 
he decided to start first with a waterbed company, okay. um, a waterbed store. Uh-huh. So that's what the pleasure chest was initially. It was a waterbed store, but it was in such a tiny space they couldn't even fit uh, waterbeds in the store. Um, so they had to sell them through the catalog, and they're like, we need to sell something else because this is ridiculous. So they started selling sex toys, never looked back. It became this enormous uh company they had you know outlets it started in new york went to chicago la at one point they had one in uh canada wow Um, so he's just a fascinating guy he unfortunately passed away from um aids in the 1980s as did his partner who who started the pleasure chest with him bill rifkin um but uh and he was young he was only 43 or 44 but uh but yeah it's just a really interesting story. Yeah, that is very, very fascinating. And I, I want to ask you about one more person, if you don't mind, Dell Williams, um, who is an ex-communist advertising maven who created the feminist sex toy store. Yeah, yeah. So Dell Williams, um, who I think I briefly mentioned earlier, she, yeah, she was a, in the Communist Party briefly. Um, she wanted to be an actress, mm-hmm. and she even claims to have gone on a date with Mel Brooks once. Um, and her acting dreams never really came to fruition, and so she ended up uh, working in advertising. And then she was inspired by Betty Dodson, who I mentioned earlier, okay, yeah. the woman who introduced vibrators to the feminist movement. She was inspired by Dodson to start selling vibrators and she would sell vibrators from her apartment and work during the day um, in advertising. Then she eventually did it full time and her store was uh, Eve's Garden and it was the first store that was explicitly feminist. She did not allow any men in the store. I mean, it was that feminist. She only sold three items at first, a Hitachi magic wand, another vibrator, and this book by Betty Dodson called Liberating Masturbation. And her story was all about masturbation, and the store was about that. And the vibrator for her and for her store was a way to empower women. And so she was the first woman to really get out there and say vibrators will empower you to take control of your own sexuality uh don't worry about the men worry about yourself and it was a really radical stance at the time even today yeah it is and what was the name of the store uh eve's garden it still exists in new york yeah, I've, I've heard of it. I've heard of it. I need to go and visit now. I'm really intrigued. I mean, you've done some fascinating research on all of these people, and none of, n- no two of them are alike. They're all so different. Um, coming yeah. to it from, you know, the ventriloquist, making them with his family, to, you know, Betty Dodson, to, you know, Gosnell Duncan. I mean, it's just really, really... Uh, interesting. I wanted to ask you about um, sexuality and feminism, but most specifically about the LGBTQ community and how you see the impact of sex toys on that community. Well, it's interesting. So uh, today, well, I guess historically, 
um, that Cole Glazier, who I talked about earlier, he was the one who really made sex toys um, a thing within the gay community. Uh, Pleasure has started out as a gay store. Um, but it, because it was a gay store and only had gay men in it, it also appealed to women. Um, but sex toys have been, uh, you know, important to gay men for at least since the 60s. Um, they, but they were marketed in sort of still as heterosexual products, even when they were sold to gay men, which was very interesting. But for feminist um, or for lesbians, um, sex toys have always been a complicated thing, and they are they remain so to this day. And um, there was the lesbian dildo debates in the 70s, and the debate was over vibrators and dildos, but mainly um, dildos. And the debate was, can a lesbian in have a clear conscience and use a dildo when she's fighting in the pa- against the patriarchy during the day? How can she go home and masturbate with a symbol of maleness at night? And right. so there were women who were anti-dildo lesbians in the 70s, in the 80s. Um, not so much today, but what you've seen is that a lot of the dildos marketed to lesbians, not all of them, are non-realistic. So they're in pink or purple colors. They don't look like a traditional penis. And lesbians kind of pioneered that design, lesbians and Gosnell Duncan, uh, okay. because he worked with lesbians. Oh, wow. To, to do this. He, he also worked with Del Williams, who was bisexual. Um, but you see uh, the LGBTQ community really innovating stuff. So last year, Buck Angel, who's um, a trans, uh, a female-to-male trans performer, created mm-hmm. the first uh, sex toy for trans men. Um, and you see this kind of innovation occurring um, among the LGBTQ community, which is really great. And um, things like there's the New York Toy Collective that makes packers for, you know, uh, trans men to wear um, while they're transitioning, that kind of thing. So there's a lot of there's a lot of innovation coming from it. Yeah. So they're really innovating. And I think that um, you know, that community, you know, I hate to use the buzzword, but they're they're becoming more empowered. Um, yeah. And I think part of any group's movement in that empowering direction is to say, OK, you know, self-pleasure and sex is important and not to be ashamed. You know, it's taking away that shame factor and they, too, need toys and they, too, need pleasure. And they're going to have to innovate because you can't depend on, you know, a straight person just to decide they're going to make a toy for you. So I think um, we're going to see a lot more innovation there as young millennials who are um, part of the LGBT community, how they're going to use technology um, and engineering to create toys and to create, you know, fun gadgets for their communities. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And brand them. I mean, it goes back, uh, you know, the first rainbow dildos are about 40 years old, and those were sold in Germany and the U.S. to the lesbian and gay community. And, um, well, the German ones, it was only in the 90s. But, uh, but yeah, so 
this has been around for a while, the innovation, but it starts uh, it starts slow, but now I think is a, is a great time to so, see that innovation when we become more accepting of the LGBTQ community in some ways. Yes. So the so a rainbow dildo is one that's colored in the in the. Tell me about that again. It's okay. So well. Um, rainbow dildos, so Duncan actually made some of these. He made some of the earliest rainbow dildos, and so they would be made of different colors of silicone. Okay. And so he would uh, have these big vats of silicone and put them together in a mold to make the dildo actually in the color of rainbow. Okay, okay. Interesting. So that's where all the pinks and the blues and all of that comes from. Well, yeah, yeah, and so there were, and a lot of um, the pinks and the blues were even radical at the time because most uh, dildos were flesh-colored, and what that meant was Caucasian flesh. Right. Um, so it was it was radical to be doing stuff that wasn't uh, the color of anyone's body, um, and that was just this weird thing. And you know, uh, lesbian and feminist sex toy stores love these kind of rainbow dildos. Interesting, because I've always wondered why they were colored that way. I didn't even think about it as even being something, you know, progressive or political. I hadn't thought about the colors that way. Really interesting. Yeah, and, you know, it's funny, too, because pink now for feminist things is considered, like, not is considered regressive and not progressive. But at the time, it was progressive. Right. What do you think the progressive color is now? I don't know. I still think that we don't have, at least for mainstream sex toys, enough skin tone colors for people who want realistic ones. Right. Um, I still think there's racism, a weird thing to say, but racism in the sex toy aisle um, in the sense of darker colored uh, sex toys. Um, So I think that that's the more progressive thing. And I also think um, just, uh, you know, if we get to a point where we're not uh, as focused on uh, recreating the human body and just doing like really interesting stuff with sex toys. So there's like a company doing like pop culture geeky sex toys and they create Pokemon Go and all this stuff. And so I think combining like pop culture with sex toys, the fact that we've come so far and they're so normalized in that sense that you can get like a Guardians of the Galaxy, not an official one, but a Guardians of the Galaxy themed dildo. That's that's pretty progressive, I think. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, like I was saying before, I think that's where the millennials come in because they're going to create toys that are fascinating to them. I mean, pretty soon. I mean, Wonder Woman was such a hit this year. I could see, you know, a young lesbian woman who might love the idea of a Wonder Woman, you know, dildo. Uh, what would yeah. that look like, you know? And that could be a turn on, you know, the powerful woman. Um, you know, what would what would a dildo, you know, she would use? What would that look like if you loved Wonder Woman? So I, I can see that really happening. I think that's an interesting um you know, it'll be fascinating to see. I mean, I've seen a lot of the toys in the magazines. They go from really sleek colors with very sleek, you know, looking stuff that look sort of engineerial, like they've been designed by an engineer or an architect. Um, and then I see others that look very soft and very feminine. So I think there's a lot 
out there depending on your taste and your style, um, which is interesting. I even think for a black woman who wants to buy a traditional looking dildo, she may want something that is darker complected so that it looks like if she's into black men, she might want a dildo that looks like a black man. She might not want to have a dildo that looks like a white man or vice versa. I can see where it would be empowering to be able to buy a dildo that was aesthetically pleasing to you. Yeah, yeah. Some women want the realistic thing and others say, you know, go as far from the realistic as possible. Yeah, I want the Wonder Woman thing. So, right. yeah, it's the choice is empowering too. the choice of being able to not just buy a dildo that a man has created in the shape of his penis, which is what the early dildos were. Right. Instead, that women have designed. Right, right. So, Hallie, it's been great speaking to you. I'd like to end today. I don't want to keep you much longer because I'm so grateful for the time that we've had together. I really cracked up and enjoyed reading um, the, the part in your book where you talk about your journey um, as a passion parties consultant selling sex toys. I, I really cracked up because at Bedroom Candy, that's what we do. And actually somebody that I know very well from the industry, I have to call her, is Pat Davis. You mentioned her. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. I had a chance to meet her last year. She came in and did some consulting for us and she spoke at the Bedroom Candy convention. She is really awesome. I really loved Pat. Um, she's now retired. I actually reached out to her to get her on the podcast, which I'm hoping to. She's now retired. Um, but I'd love to hear a little bit to close since so many of our listeners are, um, uh, bedroom candy consultants. Tell us a little bit about your journey as a, as a, a consultant at passion parties. Um, sure. Yeah. Well, I like had, so much fun selling sex toys. Um, it was completely different than what I expected. Um, but I think one of, uh, and it's a story I tell in my book, um, one of the weirdest things that happened to me or things I feel most guilty about while selling sex toys was when I convinced this married, this woman who was, uh, soon to be married, to bring a butt plug um, on her honeymoon with her fiancé. I remember reading that part. <laughs> yeah, and to buy it. And and I started out as a consultant, and I think, as all consultants know, you're there to educate women. You want to teach them about sexuality, but you also want to make money. And uh, you're trying to make money off this, and, and you want to sell as much stuff as you can. Um, and so... Uh, I told this woman that uh, that it's very common for people to bring butt plugs on their honeymoons, <laughs> and, and uh, I made that up. I have no idea. Um, as I knew had ever brought one on a honeymoon, but uh, I was trying to sell her, and I successfully did. And she's like, you know, well, my my uh, fiance thinks this is gay, and I was like, oh no, of course not. Um, <laughs> And in my world, no man would think that's gay. But, uh, of course, in, in the the regular world, people do think that. Um, but anyway, that was one of the weirdest experiences I, I had. But I, I had a lot of fun. You know, there's something just wonderful being invited into people's home with a sack full of sex toys and sharing, you know, your knowledge with them and, you know, it, 
entertaining people, but also teaching them about their bodies. I'm sure a lot of the consultants have had these similar experiences where you leave and you feel like, you know what, I taught someone, you know, something about masturbation or something about sex that they didn't know. And maybe in some small way, I've I've helped this person's uh, sex life, which is, you know, one of the most important parts of their lives. it's, It's a really great feeling. Yeah, it really is. And you summed it up so nicely. And um, I also loved the piece about um, which Pat had told me about, about one of her consultants getting arrested for having a sex toy party in Texas. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yes. And it ended up taking the company's sales to a whole new level because of all of the publicity they received. (laughs) That's funny. That's wonderful. Yeah, she says it really changed things because then, you know, they were getting interviewed. They were getting a lot of press and people were like, what? There's a sex toy company? Women can. And so it really actually helped them. Um, So it was one of those stories about in business where, you know, you've got that. You know, no no news is bad news as far as, you know, PR goes and, and getting that publicity really helped the company because it just opened up women in other states where it wasn't outlawed. All of a sudden they were calling in trying to sign up to become a Passion Parties consultant. And Pat had shared that story with me and I just... Uh, cracked up at it. It was so great. But it's just so interesting, all of these points of connection in this world. Um, you mentioning Pat, I'm like, I know her, you know, <laughs> to awesome. I'm jealous. I would love to meet her. Well, I'll try and see if I could make that happen for you. She's going to be thrilled when she hears that you mentioned her um, in your book. Um, so, Hallie, thank you so much. I mean, I could speak to you for the next hour. Um, <laughs> yeah. It was really, really fascinating. Um, and if people are interested, when does your book hit the newsstands? Um, November 7th. November 7th. So it's published by Pegasus Books, and it's called Buzz, a stim. A Stimulating History of the Sex Toy by Hallie Lieberman coming out soon. So we are excited. Um, We'd love to have you back on again, Hallie, maybe once the book is out and you're on tour. It'd be great to have you on a fireside chat at Bedroom Candy to have our consultants have some a chance to chat with you about the book. In the meantime, they get to listen to our interview here on The Business of Pleasure. Before we end today, I wanted to ask if there's anything else you wanted to say or that I didn't ask that you want to share about Buzz or your experience in the sex toy industry. Um, no, I think we've uh, covered most of it. The, the main thing is that a lot of the people in this industry, you know, have wanted to change the world, and a, a lot of people have changed the world who were in this industry, and I'm sure your consultants uh, have played a part in that. So That's a wonderful way of looking at it and a wonderful way to end that, that sex, toys, you can, you, sex toys can also change the world. Yeah, and yeah. I, I love that. I love that. I feel better about what I do today after our interview today. Oh, great. Ah. Wonderful to hear. Thank you, Hallie Lieberman, again, the author of Buzz, A Stimulating History of the Sex Toy. Thank you, Hallie, and thank you for being on The Business of Pleasure, brought to you by Bedroom Candy Boutique Parties. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. The Business of Pleasure is brought to you by Bedroom Candy Boutique Parties. To shop with us, visit us at www.bedroomcandy.com. 
To join our team of consultants who own their own home-based businesses, join us online and enter the code BOP2017. That will get you a 10% discount on your starter kit. Join us today.